The first step in getting closer to God is to realize that you need to or that you want to. And the second step in getting closer to God is to realize that it's possible. I want to encourage you to check out my book, Getting Closer to God, Anthologies from the Forefront Trilogy, Book 2. I think this will really be helpful to you in your pursuit of the Lord and help you understand what I learned over the first 30 plus years of my life as a believer, as a minister, and as a missionary in uh, a lot of the countries of the earth. Check it out. Anthologies from the Forefront, Book 2, Getting Closer to God. It's on Amazon. Welcome to From the Forefront, an FX Missions podcast with your host, Scott McClelland. Far and wide, and sometimes here at home, these bold and courageous souls that answer the call to missions have a steely metal that insists pioneering be part of their daily routine. Let's gather today and learn from those on the forefront. Here's Scott. Hi, Scott McClelland here for your FX Missions from the Forefront podcast. Thanks for joining us. Uh, please do share this podcast and any other Forefront podcast you'd like to share with someone who is interested in the subject of missions. Maybe they're just starting to think about it. And we want to be an encouragement to you guys for that. We are back with a second session here with Will Sheehy. And howdy, Will. How are you? All right. It's good to be back, Scott. <laughs> Great to have you back. And not only that, we we have like experienced uh, an upgrade, I'm going to call it. I'm mm-hmm. going to say we, we've been I upgraded. We say that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Will is joined by Etta, and we'll seem a lot less interesting from our previous podcast. Don't hold that against us. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, Etta. How are you? I'm doing great, Scott. Thank you so much for making sure I got on with you all. Yes. Well, hey, I, uh, it's one story, right? And we both have a part in it. I'm talking about in marriage and in the common experience that we have together. And we didn't just want to get half the story. Mm Mm-hmm. (laughs) <laughs> so thank you i appreciate it she brings the tender <laughs> touch if you want to get the good deep heart stuff you got to bring out in <laughs> yeah. I love it. yeah i get it and can relate on so many levels so yeah really appreciate you guys being here i think in terms of kind of stepping out from our previous recording and we may break this into a couple of sessions i think we kind of just got warmed up really before we ran out of runway will on the uh you know the subject of missions you guys long term in uh, uganda you know how you got there what the process was like how you got prepared if we can let's step in now into some of those first missions experiences i'm curious how getting there i think you guys went short term on a short term trip and then you know or maybe some yep. some variety of short term trips and then you finally ended up long term yeah that's right yeah so how did what was if there was and and i'd like for both of you guys to give perspective on this what was different than what you expected when you got to the foreign field well I know for me, when we first reached Gulu, which is in the north of Uganda, we had been a couple other places in Africa by then. And what was 
startling is it just felt like home. It was mm. so foreign in every way that you could possibly imagine. And yet the feeling was, I think we're home. This is where we belong. That's what was surprising to me. Um, wow, that's that's I'm surprised too. Go ahead, Etta. That's interesting because the first thing that came to my mind was what was so different that you don't really experience when you're there for a couple weeks that you experience once you land is the difference basically in culture. Just being there a few weeks, I built relationships with people. I, you know, loved it. And those relationships were still there when we went back long term. But then kind of the hard realities that my expectations interrelationally and relationship wise were very not lined up with what they probably should have been. Like for instance, we found out that we were pregnant shortly after moving and I expected my friends there to rejoice with me. But it it was a very odd, awkward, you know, it's not something culturally that you talk about. You don't tell people you're pregnant. You don't even talk about it till after the baby's born. And it just kind of people's reaction set me up for being thrown off kilter. And so there were several things, even kind of accidentally offending people, not knowing that I was, that just kind of shook me up and, you know, having to find that new normal within all the relationships was uh, very different. You know, I, I do a lot of short-term work. And one thing I've noticed kind of relates to what you're saying. You know, when you're in a short-term context with folks, and this is going to sound a little bit crass, I think, or I'm not sure exactly what it's going to sound like. But, uh, you know, you can tolerate anybody for a couple of weeks, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And they yeah. can tolerate you for a couple of weeks. We call that the honeymoon phase. Yes. Right. Yeah. When you park the RV and get out for a year, <laughs> you know, that's that's a different kind of thing. And that's when, as you say, the cultural differences start to, you know, bleed into the environment. And really, I think we don't realize that we're culturally programmed so much differently. You face kind of a ledge, right? You come up to a ledge and there's a drop off uh, in terms of what you didn't know. Yes. Uh, that's hard. <laughs> yeah. That is hard. Yeah. The honeymoon phase ends in every area of life. <laughs> Sorry, guys. I'm having a good time over here. Thanks for joining me. No. Yeah. yeah. That's when it goes from being the feelings, you know, of like excitement and love or whatever, like being in love to being like, no, this is where it gets real. Like, am I committed mm -hmm. to the well-being of this people, even on the days where I don't like them? <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. you know? Because you're not always going to feel love for that that people. You know, half the time you want to strangle them, but right, yeah. But real agape love, you know, is on the days where you don't like them. Are you still going to show up, and are you still going to do what's best for the people? You know, to build them mm -hmm. up in the Lord, and and stay committed and not leave and see it through. You know, that's real love, and it's tested in that furnace of cross-cultural yes. rubs and culture shock, mm. you know, and that, that nitty gritty day to day where you're aggravated and frustrated or hurt or offended. And then you still keep showing up and you still keep saying yes. And you still keep loving people. You know, that is where love is tested and proven. 
Mm. Well, and, you know, I think we forget, you know, that's the way life is, right? No matter where you're living, those same dynamics. I think we have a romantic notion toward missions, you know, that you'll you'll just be floating along in a in a stream of God's grace that is full <laughs> of water and you know, you're never gonna touch bottom. And you know, that's I think for me it's important that I help remove the romantic notions that people have about missions because that is really it's a roadblock to being effective in a missions calling. So totally. you guys are helping me do that. Well, the thing that, <laughs> the thing that helped me the most after we went, we went for five months, came back, got another year of training, and then went back permanently. And that year of training, the thing that helped me the most was learning about culture shock. Um, <laughs> I studied it out, mm. and it's actually a thing. It's like a psychological phenomenon that happens in the human heart. Just like with grief, you know, they say there's the five stages of grief, and everybody goes through it. Well, it's the same with culture shock. There's three stages of culture shock that you go through. And it's not linear, it's cyclical. You know, you keep going through it and going through it. But learning about that helped my heart so much to be like, I'm not a bad Christian or a bad missionary because, you know, I'm in the phase of culture shock where I don't like anything about Ugandan or Ugandans and I just want to leave. You know, if I didn't know that, then I would feel like such a loser, you know, but I realized this is part of the journey and you just got to hang in there, you know, and keep showing up and not leave. And then you'll come out of it to the place of acceptance, you know, where you realize it's different. It's not perfect, but it is the way it is. I'm not going to change it. I'll do what I can, you know, but I don't need to go on a crusade to change each and every little thing that frustrates me, you know, and you get to that point of acceptance after you fight that battle. But um, it helped me so much to not feel completely disqualified, you know, as I'm going through those hard days. And let me tell you, it doesn't end. I mean, 10 years in, I still get into that part of the cycle of culture shock where it's like, ah, you know, but you mm. come out of it and that's good. I mean, that's the thing you got to know. There's light at the end of the tunnel. Wow. Yes. How long does it take you or how long did it take you guys? I, I would guess that the official language in Uganda is English, but is, is, is am I right? Yeah. Or how, how long, right. what, what? Are you speaking English every day over there or what do you, what, how's that going? Well, you know, English can mean a lot of things. We're speaking Ugandan English, which is, which is kind of its own language. It's very British and uh, very different. And so, but, but people where we are, people get around with English. So we are the missionaries who've been there 10 years and never learned a second language. Yeah. We're, we're <laughs> those right. Yeah. Well, English, I mean, like you say, the king's English, right? right exactly. <laughs> or yeah. the queen's English. I I get that also in, you know, with the work we do in Kenya. It's English, but it's, you know, it's probably a hybrid, you know, even from uh, anything recognizable. It's kind of its own, you know, and then they mix in, you know, I guess. Is Swahili present at all in your context? Yep. Oh, yeah. 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 We've, got, we've got five languages in Tororo. And so English is kind of English plus a bunch of loner words from the other four languages, you know, Swahili is one of them. And then there's two tribal languages. And then there's the more kind of national 
di- tribal dialect of Uganda. And all five of them are kind of mixed together in this hodgepodge. Yeah, I track with that for sure. Etta, would you tell us a little bit about your experience, the cultural, you know, initial cultural experiences that you had, in addition to the one you mentioned before? What, what was it like for you? Well, I think there was a lot of kind of realizing things in retrospect that were hard, like ways that I had, you know, when I mentioned offending people, you know, you'd have the gossip going around the neighborhood that, you know, so-and-so came over and she didn't offer them a drink. She didn't even give them soda, much less food. (laughs) That was just, I mean, I think it's a little painful when you realize that, you know, without knowing, you know, that you're hurting people. Um, I Mm -hmm. had someone who I had grown in friendship with, and I guess we got to be close enough friends where she could tell me that she felt like I was a selfish and a stingy person because I didn't make twice as much to eat at dinner than my family would eat. And I said, Mm. well, don't want to throw away food. I just try to make what, and she said, no, that's selfish because you don't know when so-and-so or so-and-so or so-and-so is going to stop by and you have to have enough made for them. And so there were things like that. I I think one of the um, hardest, I mean, I guess mostly cultural, but it it was pretty convoluted of a bunch of different things and circumstances that has taken me these whole last nine or 10 years to sort out and pray through with the Lord. But it's when we took in a child from the slum area and she had initially asked us just to send her to school, Mm -hmm. get her caught up in school. She'd been out of school for about five years. And then it just pretty quickly developed into her needing to stay with us where she was, wasn't safe and all of those things. And, um, you know, with time, like I said, those friendships that I had made the whole time, of course, that's taking in a child from that area is not easy for anyone or any family, Hmm. but you're doing it out of love and you're doing it because you're an ambassador of Jesus. Like this is what he wants for, you know, those suffering and, you know, he wants to to bring about justice and, and what's right is not that this child wouldn't be in school, all of those things to say that then we threw this very confusing element on when my friends, my Ugandan friends began to tell me that I was actually doing her an injustice and what I was doing Mm. was the worst thing possible for her. And I would ask them, but it always felt very, you know, confusing and they wouldn't quite open up. Finally, one of them said, well, you're, you're spoiling her. And I thought, well, I could see that perspective just because we do live with running water. You know, I'm going, oh, I make her sweep her room. I make her make up her bed, you know, like, but it's taken me all these years to realize that, you know, what they were saying was basically she's not going to make a good wife because she's not learning how to fetch water from the water hole. She's not learning how to cook all the local food. She's not learning how to dig and hoe and weed in the garden and all these things that someone, you know, basically what they would say, you know, a village wife would do because those who live Mm. in the village are those that haven't gone through, you know, finished high school or had any university or anything. And and they could see that the hope of this girl getting ahead was very slim. And so Mm. 
what they were meaning, but they couldn't either they couldn't communicate it to me or I wasn't in a position of understanding that world well enough yet to realize or know that I could actually be setting her up for failure in her own culture if, you know, her kind of getting by was going to be to, you know, get married and their marriage is not like it is here. It's not the primary thing isn't, oh, you love to have a, a loving friendship and partnership with this person. It's more of a provision thing, you know, and it, it's a, a can be more like a business interaction where, yes, the husband has to pay dowry because that woman who's learned how to fetch water and cook the foods and, and grow all the food and everything is very, very valuable to her tribe and her village. And now you're taking mm. her away because she's going to provide that for you and children and grow your, your tribe. And so I was kind of taking away that kind of value from her by mm. having this sense of hope. And she, she could, and so it's just taken me years to, to understand what they were saying then. And then, you know, my goodness, how to navigate that and the situation we were in just, I just, thank God that he's the God that sorts it all out and it's not up to me, <laughs> but that yes. probably is one of the most poignant examples I could give. Yeah. Yeah. And I think because the worlds are so dissimilar that we don't really have a place to put the comments sometimes when we get to a level of trust to be able to get transparency from someone else. It's hard for us to put those comments because we're thinking about what our intentions were, right? Not maybe those outcomes that seemed obvious to everyone but us. We're thinking, hey, clearly it makes sense for us to help on the education side or whatever. And it, it you're ruining her potential of getting into or perpetuating the system that that is in normal life for everybody around there. Just... I, I've been through a couple of those things and, and I've, I mostly learned what I didn't know. I didn't maybe mm -hmm. come out too good on, in those things. I, I mean, I was kind of stumped at times and I could see what you're saying there being the same thing. Help us Lord, right? <laughs> we got to have some help here and to do everything in love at the end of the day, that's uh more than just a good guideline. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's it's so important. I comfort myself, you know, in a lot of things like you saying, you know, and you do it out of love, like, you know, there is love, there is wisdom, there is all these things. But at the end of the day, the Lord says the greatest of these is love. And I picture myself standing before him often because I, I need to, <laughs> all these various things that I face. And, you know, this child, he's not going to ask me, how successful were you, you know, with her? How, how did this turn out? He's going to ask me, did you grow in love? You know, did you mm. grow in love? Did your heart grow in love? Did you mm. show her my love? That's going to be the question when mm -hmm. I stand before him. And so I'm going, okay, if my answer can't be that, then I realign my heart for that to be my answer, you know? And if mm -hmm. it is, then I... Yeah. I just try to lean into trusting him with the outcomes and with the rest. Mm. Yes. Navigating those things is, you know, exactly. yes. I think at a minimum, you know, we grow in effectiveness little by little. 
but we can obviously all of life is a purification of motives, right? <laughs> We're getting scrubbed a little bit so that our motives, you know, match the Lord's motives. And, yep. and I think that's the point in a big sense, as you clearly indicated. And I'm thankful to have already learned that, <laughs> you know, and I, obviously I continue to learn it as we as we do. So just switching gears here a little bit, you know, I want to kind of get into a subject that is going to be challenging, I think, for us to get all the way through. But it is a part of your story. And I and I appreciate you guys when your willingness to share it. But early on in your time there, and I don't know exactly how early on it was, but pretty early on, you guys suffered a pretty big loss while you're on the field. And it was very nearly a bigger loss than it was in terms of you know, if possible, that may be hard to say or hard to say like that. But can you guys dig into the story a little bit there for us? I don't know how long you were on the field, but if maybe if you can just frame that up a little bit for us and talk about what happened to you guys and your family early on. Yeah. So it was at the end of 2013. So I guess we've been on the mission field for three or four years by then. Etta was pregnant with our fourth child, Lydia. And this is December. And Lydia was really late. So, you know, a week late, two weeks late, two and a half weeks late. And well, let me say this, it was drawn out too, because the the health care was about five to six hours from where we lived. Mm. So we had to like rent a house, take all of our children there and a babysitter for whenever she does decide to come and wait. <laughs> and so, yeah. and leading up to Christmas too, it got very, it may have been, seemed mm. a lot longer yeah. than if we were in regular circumstances. And, and any woman who's gone late on her pregnancy knows <laughs> that you are ready to get that baby out <laughs> by that point, mm. you know, two, yes. two and a half weeks late. So every day, Edda and I would take these walks and I'd try to encourage her and, and comfort her. And and what the Lord had given me to comfort her with was Ecclesiastes 3, verse 1 and 2. It says, there is an appointed time for everything. There is a time for every event under heaven, a time for birth and a time to die. And I would just encourage her, you know, hey, there's a time for this baby to be born. The Lord's picked the day for Lydia's birth. Acts 1.7 says, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons, but they've been fixed by my father's own divine authority. And so I just encourage her, God has chosen this day. He's appointed the hour for Lydia. Don't worry about when she's coming. And this was what we were really comforting ourselves on. So then we had the baby and it was awesome. We took her home on Christmas day and just a really, really special time as a family. and. About five weeks later, we had to go back to the capital city, about five hours away, to register her birth with the U.S. Embassy and the consular. And we finished that, and we're driving back to our home five hours away. And it got dark along the way. And as we were driving, it, it was probably around 9 or 10 at night. And so it was pitch black, can't see anything. There's no street lights there. Yeah, there's no ambient light of any kind. So it's very, very, very dark. 
and someone passes me. It's like a two lane highway and we're going maybe like 50 miles an hour or so. They pass me with their bright lights on and it blinds me for a second. I can't really see anything. And um, as soon as I can see again, lo and behold, right in front of me, they said about eight meters in front of me is a semi truck. It's a tanker truck that's parked and stopped and broken down Mm -hmm. in my lane. There wasn't any light taillights or anything, you know, so it just came out of nowhere. And I tried to slam on brakes and swerve into the other lane, but it was too late. And we just collided with the back of this steel tanker truck. And we were in a minibus, so there's no hood or anything. So the impact, the whole vehicle just crushed in around us. The windshield burst and our legs were, you know, just the whole thing crushed in on us. And Mm. so I cry out to Etta and I'm like, Etta, are you okay? And she's not responding. And so I run around, my, my arm was broken, but I jump out and I run around and I try to get her out and I can't get her door open because it's all crushed and, um, pedestrians start showing up and somebody stands up and starts telling people what to do and they get an ax out and they cut the door off because there's no emergency response vehicles and they Mm -hmm. finally, uh, get the door off. They can't get Ada out. Her legs are pinned. And she looks so bad. You know, she's, her face is all, you know, she's missing teeth and her face is all cut up and, and her legs are pinned. And so what they end up doing is tying the front of our vehicle to the truck in front of us and the back to another truck. And they just kind of, that guy reverses and just stretches the van out. And eventually they're able to get Ada out and take her to the hospital and one one amazing thing that happened in that moment is my phone disappeared in the accident. I guess someone stole it or something shortly after. So I couldn't call my friend to come pick us up and take us to the hospital. And there's no 911 service. So mm. we didn't have any way to get to the hospital. But the, a guy came up to me and he said, you know, he said, hey, who are you? You know, where do you work? What organization are you with? And I told him, and he knew us, he knew our people. And so he called our organization. He had him in his phone, you know, called our matron of students. And she called Jesse, my friend. And within a few minutes of the accident, he was on his way to come get us. Mm. Well, it turns out that guy was the same guy who was passing me and blinded me out. And in a way... Mm was responsible for the accident in, in his own way, you know, and, mm-hmm. and he was going to leave because in Uganda, you do not stop at the scene of the accident. The mob will yeah. mob you and, you know, do mob justice and put you to death. That's what happens in Uganda. Right. So yeah. he needs yeah. to hit the accelerator and leave the scene of the accident and his car won't accelerate. And the Lord says to him, get out and help these people. Well, it turns out he's a pastor. So he gets out to help us. And he's the guy who knew our people and called them. And then he's the guy who took charge of the accident scene. So people didn't do banditry and and rob us. He said, no, we got to help these people. You do this and you do that. And he he used to be a police officer. So he took command of the scene and got everybody Mm -hmm. helping us. I just really, it's, it's amazing. God's goodness in the midst of all of this, you know, he was, Mm -hmm getting the people in the right places to do the right thing. And Jesse picks us up, takes us to the hospital. Well, let me just throw in there too, because I I love to tell 
it all because you do begin to see God in every, you know, detail and what seems like the mm. impossible because, you know, you mentioned that you've done work in Kenya. We are on that main, you know, highway that goes between Nairobi and Kampala. We're not in Tororo. We're still about 30 minutes out. Those pedestrians around are from those villages there. So it's not like we would be in a common place where anyone would know us, know that we're from or connected in Tororo, like nothing like that. So the fact that this man was from Tororo and knew that alone was was so huge. Yeah. Just imagine a random wow. person on the and interstate who has your friend's number in his phone. And time was of the <laughs> yeah. essence. For wow. my life, you know, I yeah. if if we had have been stranded much longer, I mean, my life was definitely on the line oh, with yeah. time, and mm. so you just see God's hand yeah. in all of it. Go ahead, honey. So we get to the hospital, and Edda's still unconscious. I mean, she's her femur's broken all the way through. She's got five or six different breaks in her hip, pelvis, clavicle. Everything. Well, I mean, we didn't she's know like, that then, but just to say, I was. I mean, bad she was off. beat up and um, beat totally beat up. And we get to the hospital, and this is the main hospital, the government hospital, and the mm-hmm. lights are off. It's like ten at night. We go in, and we have to wake the nurses up and say, "Hey, we're having an emergency," and they're like, "Okay, okay, let's make some tea," you know. And we're just like, mm. "Ah," you know. And yeah. they call the doctor. Well, the doctor doesn't even show up for an hour. And when he shows up, you know, he's got alcohol in his breath and all this stuff. So we're trying to just kind of stabilize her. And I'm just frantic, you know, and I'm praying and I'm like, part of me is feeling completely responsible. And Edda's not responding. The baby's not responding. She's not waking up. She's not crying. And I'm just like feeling the weight of this is all my fault. I was the mm-hmm. one driving I should have seen that car. I should have been driving more slowly and carefully, or we should have left Kampala earlier so we wouldn't be driving at night. And I should have left my high beams on and I should have all these things going on in my mind. And so I'm feeling like, oh my gosh, my wife might die. My baby not might die. And this is all my fault. And so I'm mm. praying and contending with God, you know, for healing and to save their life. And at the same time, I'm carrying the weight of it all. And I'm just frantic, you know? And so as I'm praying though, the Lord breaks in in that moment. And he tells me, he says, I'm sovereign over life and death. And he brings back to my mind what he had taught us about Lydia's birth. In that Ecclesiastes 3, 2, he says, there's a time and a season appointed for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die. And I never thought about the second part of that verse. We mm-hmm. knew there was a time for Lydia to be appointed, a time appointed for Lydia to, to be born. We said, it's also true that there's a time appointed for her to die. And I am sovereign over life and death. I alone hold the keys to death and Hades. And nobody can open that door and nobody can keep it closed except for me. Mm-hmm. And in that moment, everything shifted in a second. Mm. And it was like, if God is sovereign over life and death, then there's no one to blame. You know, Mm. it's not any man's fault if someone is born or if someone dies. It's this, Mm. these things divine to belong to God's own divine authority. 
And it released something in my heart. I just tell you in that moment, it all came off and knew that I'm not to blame, you know, like Mm -hmm. I've got to lean into God's sovereignty and trust him with whatever the outcome is and try to be faithful to do my part and pray. But at the end of the day, it all belongs to God and there's not nothing to blame. It's just to trust, not Mm. to blame a person, but to trust the Lord. And it just, man, it just broke all of that off. And, and I didn't feel the weight of it anymore. And I got into this place of peace and trusting the Lord with all things. I, I'll never forget our one of the friends that showed up at the airport later said that he'll never forget walking in and that you were there saying, your head is of finest gold. Or that Song of Solomon, I believe, chapter five, where the bride just talks on and on about her beloved. But one of the things she says, your head is of the finest gold, like your leadership is perfect. And um just yeah, he said, "I found you in peace." Just proclaiming that truth. Yeah. Mm, wow. I think sometimes we think we have to understand in order to trust, right? But really, in order to understand, we've got to trust mm-hmm. before understanding, right? I mean, yeah, I, I think mean, if we're working from a foundation of trust, we are going to understand a lot more than exactly. we would if we're working from a foundation of understanding. We got to get that right. When you're in this, in these moments of crisis, it is not the time to put God on trial. You know what I'm saying? Like when the whole world's falling Mm. apart around you is not the time to be like, well, God, are you really loving? Are you really sovereign? Are you really wise? Are you really faithful? Are you really good? You know, it's like, you've got to have this journey with God ahead of time where you've tested and proven him in all of these areas And then when the crisis hits, that's not the time to question God. That's the time to stand, you know, on what you know to be true about God. Like having done all this, stand. And you got to stand on what you know, you know, and not doubt in the darkness what he's revealed to you in the light. It's the time to Mm -hmm. remember, you know, it's time to remember his faithfulness, say he's never failed me yet and he won't fail me now. You know, and and that's what you got to understand. You don't have to understand the reason that these things are happening, but what you do have to understand is who God is and the knowledge of God that you've cultivated in your own faith journey with him. You know, that's what you got to stand on. Well, he began to run through all of this, you know, later on, but I just feel like what I can say is that he really taught me a lot about what faith is. You know, we say it all the time. It's believing what you don't see. Too often we think of it as, you know, a circumstance, you know, he's never going to let us down, but we decide what letting us down is, you know, it's the money didn't come through or the this or whatever I was believing in faith, the healing didn't come through, whatever I was believing in faith didn't happen. But he was saying, he's like, you know, I, in the hospital room, I remember looking around, I, I could not literally move. This was days later, not at the point of the story we're at, I still wasn't comprehensive, but clearly I'm talking now. So I did live. You've got that part of the story. <laughs> and, right. uh, but I'm going, wow, all the circumstances, I can't move my body. I can't like this and that and the other, like would say that you're not good. 
but I know, like, I just knew in my heart, like my declaration, you are good. You are. And he's like, yes. And that, like, you've ravished my heart. Like one, you know, declaration in the darkness of what he's shown us in the light, that stake in the ground, like that is the faith that Jesus is talking about when he says, hey, guys, when I come back, will I find faith on the earth? Mm-hmm. You know, when he comes yes. back, it's going to look, be looking pretty bad. You know, <laughs> like our circumstances <laughs> we were believing for in faith are probably going to be looking bad. But he's doing the first Peter thing. He's taking us through the trials and the testings mm-hmm. of what? Of our faith mm-hmm. so that it would yeah. be of pure gold, meaning mm-hmm. it would be staked upon him and upon his character. Yeah. And we have to remember yeah. everything we've gone through. It's why David and Psalms, he's always saying, remember, I'll remember how you did this. I'll remember how you did that because we're going to have to have those stakes, you know, the overcoming by the word of our testimony of our stories. Like we're going to have to have that to stand on faith. I think Will and I both could say, we look back over our lives and story and, you know, we had fought so many smaller battles I'll hear Will talk about, you know, that this was like a Goliath time in our lives. But just like Mm. David said before he fought Goliath, it's not my first battle. I've already killed the bear. I've already killed the lion. You know, it's like, we look Mm -hmm. back where now it seems like such small trials that were massive to Mm. us at the time. Yeah. When we walked through them and we fought the good fight of faith, it prepared us for now this where, like Will said, pretty shortly thereafter, he's no longer in that battle. He's already come to that place of resting in the midst of the warfare on God's sovereignty because he knows that he knows that he knows God's good no matter what the outcome is. Wow. Well, thank you both for sharing, you know, about that and both, you know, from both perspectives there. And I know they're one perspective, but the uh, different vantage points, I think, really helps us to relate. In this particular case, you know, one of you guys was largely incapacitated. You know, I mean, you like you say, you couldn't move. You were unconscious. You were the impact was very direct in that regard. And obviously the surrounding perspective, like you were saying, Will, where you're trying to sync up to the situation and, you know, it's, it's a, there's trauma right there. You know, I mean, there's yeah. a, almost a disconnect. You've got a you've got a, a, a near shock experience going oh, yeah. on that is there's a lot going on in that time, even though it seems like time stands still. There's a bunch of stuff going on spiritually and, and emotionally and in every way. Yep. You've been listening to From the Forefront, hosted by FX Missions' Scott McClelland. If you've enjoyed this episode and you'd like more information on today's guest, please go to our Facebook page at facebook.com slash fxmissions. Please rate our show on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. If you know someone who should be a guest on our podcast, we're currently reviewing candidates for upcoming episodes. Please submit their name, affiliation, and an essay of why their story needs to be told to info at fxmissions.com. And of course, you can always follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and our website at fxmissions.com. From Scott McClelland and the whole team here at FX Missions, thanks for listening. Till next time, have a great day. Thank you.